Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt, and I thank you for joining us. Uh, this week, we're joined by one of the superstars of the future, Colin Alrad, congressman from Dallas, Texas, and a superstar of the present, too. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. We love those questions. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist, Funrise, and Honey. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. That really helps to make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, as always, there's a lot to talk about this week, but uh, those hearings uh, earlier on the Capitol assault were horrifying. There was a breakdown in intelligence, communications, coordinations, and as the former sergeant of arms of the Senate said, there were a bunch of murderous thugs out there to hurt and kill people. Uh, were assaulting the Capitol and cited by Trump. Now, now, James, I think there has to be a commission. We agree on that. I think, however, the Republicans are playing games. Uh, they want to try to set crazy ground rules. They want to put the Jim Jordan of the world to make this a circus. And I think instead of congressional Democrats and Republicans naming members, I think there ought to be legislation like there was in the 9-11 Commission, like there was in the Warren Commission and other commissions, to give the president authority to appoint a commission. Five Republicans, five Democrats, subject con- to congressional veto, picking up on one of your ideas. Doug Jones would be a great chairman. Tom Ridge could be the Republican co-chairman. You can name Democrats with expertise like Jay Johnson, find a terrific police uh, chief somewhere, Republicans like Fran Townsend and Mitch Daniels, a good staff, uh, subpoena power, and report back within 100 days. You could get an extension if you need it. A lot better, I think, than, than the circus Republicans hope to put on now. Ron Johnson, he's like the, uh, you know, O.J. Simpson. He's looking for the real killer. We really don't know who did this. And so we we got we have to go out and find out who's really responsible for that. Oh, really? Uh, I, I think that, that the joint idea has real merit because you're right if they let Kevin McCarthy <clears throat> or even Mitch McConnell Pick the members, it's just going to be nothing but flame thoughts. I, I throw out one alternative, which seems to be the preferred model in higher education in the private sector just hire some mega law firm to write a report. You know, I, I mean, it, but, but I, 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 what you have is, is also a good idea. There just has to be some device set up to tell us what happened and what can we do to make sure that this does not happen again. Yeah. Obviously, Ron Johnson and Jim Jordan, they, they want to pretend that they don't know what happened. And it could have been Antifa. It could have been, you know, Joe Biden's people dressed up like that. I mean, it's, it's too stupid for words. It, it, it's yeah, really, I, it's really no, you're hard. actually right. And the reason I think I prefer this to a law firm, although law firms have done some good work with a number of investigations, is mm-hmm. I think if you put the imprimatur of people who understand politics, who understand security, uh, who are bipartisan, uh, I think a number of Republicans, not 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 Ron Johnson, who remember last week we you know argued about how 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 below room temperature his IQ was. And 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 the Jim Jordans, you're not going to get them. Kevin McCarthy's afraid of a shadow, but I think there will be a number of Republicans. I think McConnell would be very hard pressed to criticize a commission that comes up with a report that has Tom Ridge, Mitch Daniels, Fran Townsend, and other people signing on to it. 
Um, so I, I, I just, I think you got to get to the bottom of this. Maybe a hundred days is too quick. I don't know, but, uh, I, I think yeah, they need subpoena power and they need a budget. That that's really fast. And I, I'm, I'm open to either thing, but we, we, we gotta, whatever the best device is to get to the bottom of this is where we need to go. And I mean, understand too, there's going to be so many lawsuits that are going to come out of this, it's going to be unimaginable. But these things take time, and that there needs to be accountability. And whatever that can get it done with dispatch and not off the frivolous rabbit tracking like, like Ron Johnson did yesterday, that was like the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was. It was really bad. Well, I mean, you know, it's the same. You're right. It was terrible. And that's that line that I've heard from some of those House crazy suit was Antifa. Well, no, 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 it wasn't. I mean, I'm sorry. Right. You know who the people who were? Killed the people the were being arrested. Okay, it could have been anybody. Right. Yeah. Well, it no, could have been a Jay killer. I mean, who knows? Um, yeah. Or the or the person who did it, rather. Um, yeah. I, I, I I agree. We we gotta wrap this up somehow. We have to do it credibly, and I think the 9-11 commission. Fell short on some areas, but I think it basically had a beneficial impact. It was impressive the way they did it, uh, and I think you know if you can find the equivalent of Lee Hamilton and Tom Keene, which I think they're out there. Again, this is citing you. I think Doug Jones would be a great chairman. Yeah. Um, well, it's our hunt's dream. We could have some responsible, principled, conservative Republicans. We're looking for. I didn't <laughs> think I thought Doug Jones was a Democrat. I know, but just we have to have five and five. Yeah, it's okay. Well, you, know, you can yeah. make it nine and one, and then they'll just divide up skins and shirts no. afterwards. Yeah, yeah. that would so do much good. Uh, I mean, I, I think there have been those commissions. Some of them are just BS, but some of them work. Uh, the nine eleven commission, I think, really, really did work. Um, it did too. I think. I um, James, well, let's talk about where we are on COVID. Um, there are somewhat conflicting signals. We certainly have made progress. We're better off than we were five or six weeks ago, there was a very good piece in the Atlantic, which has covered this thing just magnificently. And other signs, I think the bottom line that they reach is the next couple of months are still going to be very difficult. But by the summer, we really should be opening up, not totally, but opening up largely. And and by the fall, hopefully continuing, but be careful, be cautious, because there could be, you know, a little bit of a reversal or setback with the, with the variant uh, uh, then. How does that square with what you're? Yeah, I, I, I read it. I said, mentally, if the variant, if we went back to where we were, you know, last April or or even last December, I don't know if people could take it. I mean, mentally, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just don't know. In my, myself, I, I, I know that. I, I think that there being, if these variants do not cause you know, significant problems. I think I think they're being very conservative in their projections. And I don't blame. Them. I, I, I mean, I would be if I were Dr. Fauci, if I was somebody, and I thought, you know, we were going to come back in in mid to late June. I would say mid to late August. Not that I would be a liar or anything, but you don't know what you're planning on. But you know, I think people are ready to bust out and go, and. So far, the, the the number of infections has gone down. Now today, it was forty percent over a fourteen day average, which is down from forty four, but that's still a pretty significant drop. 
Right. And you're seeing a pretty significant drop in hospitalization. So as more and more people get vaccinated, the hope is we, we might be watching baseball sometimes in June. I'm hoping. But, yeah, you know, I'm hoping too. I, 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 I'm, I'm hoping for April. I suspect yeah, even yeah. June is, is a little bit optimistic. I mean, we still face that obstacle of one third of the public says they're not going to get vaccinated. Now that can, you know, turn some of that around. But uh, there is more resistance than there should be. It reaches a point where, you know, it's important. I mean, it's important whether we have vaccinated, you know, 60 percent of the public or 75 percent of the public. And um, you know, I, I, think, I think they have to think of special things to do. I would I would have, I don't know, basketball players, rap stars, others uh, visibly. I, I think a lot of the people who are saying they won't be vaccinated aren't much affected by Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Uh, being vaccinated, but there are other people who could affect them. I, I'm a I'm a mixed mind on this. I'll be honest with you. I did a class last night on vaccine hesitancy. First of all, right now it's not a problem because there's more demand for the vaccine that, than they are. There are more people willing to take it in vaccine doses that you have. Right. All right. So when you get to the point where vaccine hesitancy starts to play. You don't have to deal with something. I think that in most of the data I've seen is showing that hesitancy is on the decline. And I think the biggest thing is what I'm hoping for, not predicting it, but I'm hoping for it, and I think it's a reasonable hope. As people know more and more people that were vaccinated and did not have anything go wrong, they're going to trust the vaccine more and more. And I, th- I think that that kind of personal validation is what is going to matter more than than Barack Obama, or LeBron James, or, or, or anybody else take, taking the vaccine? And you know what, what happened? That's happened during the pandemic is when places really get hot that they start having a lot of cases, behavior changes because people know people that got it. That they, they need to be touched by this, and I think if we just get as many shots and as many arms if we possibly can, as fast as we possibly can, I think that will bring around some people who were previously hesitant to say, well, I just know too many people that got this and shit, it didn't bother them, so I'm going to take it myself. That, that's my hope. And that's Well, my hope. I, I certainly embrace your hope. And if we want to be playing, be sitting in that stadium in June, that's got to happen. Uh, otherwise, we won't be. Uh, uh, and I guess I would, I, my cautionary note would be, I'm told, I haven't seen it, but I'm told by people that, that social media, crazy right-wing social media is full of stuff, warning, absolutely trash, warning people about this. And unfortunately, we've learned that has an effect. And I hope that can right. be offset by people realizing, no. I don't, James, know of any, I, I don't know if anyone's died from this uh, vaccine. I, I haven't read about it if they have, no. and there have been hardly any uh, any uh, people who've been, right. uh, who've had real problems with it? it it's really I, I, I probably, if I counted, I probably know fifty people, including myself, that have been vaccinated. And I have not had one person. As my sister said, she had a little arm soreness. I, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I got a slight sample size in my own life, as will other people. Yeah, same with me. And, and I, I think the best public health message is. You do it to protect other people. You know, it's an old song, Why? Because I love you. You love, I mean, you, my, my daughter's 22. 
would soon be 23, he said, Daddy, young people are not that afraid of COVID. What they're really afraid of is giving it to their parents and their grandparents. Yeah. And, and I think there's a a lot of truth to that. I mean, they know people that had it and they well, I let's think it's I, I can't tell you how much I hope you're right. I am I guess um, I'm yeah I'm kind of quite cautiously optimistic, but with the emphasis on cautiously. I'm optimistic and it with with preservations. I, I don't have reservations. I'm more optimistic than I have reservations. I, but, I am 100 percent optimistic on getting the vaccine. Uh, I again, we like you know. I don't know five, six, seven dozen. No one, no one who's had a really bad reaction. Worst is you know for a day they didn't feel very well or sick or their arm hurt for a couple of days. So right. uh, it, 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 I think that is getting compounded every day. Right, it's and I think that's the best selling. James, let me ask you about one of the things very quickly. Tiger Woods. Um, Tiger Woods was injured in a terrible automobile accident. He's he's going to live. We don't know what kind of physical condition. They did very intensive operation on his leg. Um, I, 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 I suspect he's going to have trouble ever playing golf again, but I don't know that. That's sheer conjecture. I just want to say this about, uh, uh, about Tiger Woods. I'm not a golfer. My son is, but I'm not. But I would argue that, that Tiger Woods as an athlete has had more impact on his sport than any athlete since Jackie Robinson, because golf prior to Tiger Woods was considered mainly a middle and upper class white sport. There were people like Arnold Palmer who grew up, you know, kind of working class, but his father was a, a, a pro at a, at a country club. Uh, and I think Tiger Woods changed that and hadn't changed, you know, as much as it should. But I think he had a remarkable impact, a remarkable societal impact, as well as being perhaps the greatest golfer of all times. Well, I think what happens here is this guy was a prodigy. Like, you know, you watch his golf ring when he was swinging three years old. And his daddy really pushed him. And I, I just think a lot of these prodigies at anything, sports or musical prodigies, or math prodigies, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure there's a book on it or one of our listeners can, can fill me in. I don't think life generally, they have that happy life. It, it, in spite of all of that just remarkable talent and dedication that you have to have to be a Tiger Woods, you know, concert pianist when you're 13 years old, a ballerina. I, I don't think I'd want that. I don't think I'd wish that on my children. I really don't. I mean, I'm glad that they did it. I mean, it's I, I'm not a golf player either, but I've watched him, you know, like anybody else. And, you know, into the Masters and Tigers ahead, you go nuts. Uh, he had a kind of smiling, kind of winsome personality. But I think under that was a, a, a deeply troubled guy. And I suspect that when we find out the events that caused these gruesome injuries we have, we're going to find further evidence that he's a troubled guy. And I, yeah. I feel for him, you know, but I, I think that, these prodigies, they, they entertain us marvelously, but they, they have a lot of issues underneath. Well, I, I'm not one that, that really gets a real kick out of watching golf on television, except when Tiger was playing. So I know we both wish him a very speedy recovery. I hope he's back in the golf course, but mainly I hope he has as much of his health as possible back. That is too, yeah. Anyway. Hey, James, reaffirming the point about Joe Manson has just come in as we are taping this show that he is going to support Deb Havlin for interior secretary. That's not an easy vote for him in West Virginia. 
it's really a gutsy vote. It probably assures her confirmation as, as some of the Republicans and right-wingers have really gone after her. So I think it underscores everything we said about Joe Manchin. Yeah, it, it, it probably, uh, it makes it even tougher for Nero. I know they were hanging in there and there was some talk to get Lisa Mikowski. They may, I don't know the answer to that. But you're right, and I, I think this whole anti-Joe Manchin stuff that was cropping up in certain corners of the Democratic Party is, well, first of all, I don't agree with it, but, but secondly, it's politically idiotic. Yeah, yeah. They got to learn how to count at some point. Yeah, they, they do. It's, math is part of the, the progressive agenda, all right? The ability to count has to be at the core of the progressive agenda. We're going to get Joe Manchin on this show. We will. We will. Hey, James, when you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development. Let me tell you about the ultimate life hack for learning new things and getting ahead. It's an incredible app that solves these problems, and we highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information, for busy and successful people like you, James Carville, from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book anywhere, anytime. 12 million people are now enjoying Blinkist's massive and growing library. There's everything from self-help to business, health, and history, along with the latest titles from the bestseller list and classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but you never had time to. Yeah, you know, if, if, if you're Robert Carroll and you're doing a, a five-volume, you know, six-million-word biography of Lyndon Johnson, you probably don't need Blinkus. But if you're like the rest of the world and you're, you're curious and you're busy and you think that learning is a, is a lifetime endeavor, then this product is exactly for you. It's going to give you sound, digestible, learnable, retainable information across a, a, a variety of topics that will stick with you for the rest of your life. You, you, you're not going to be able to write a dissertation off of this, but I'll tell you what, you're going to have a lot of fun and you'll be a damn good dinner party conversationalist if we ever get back to going to fucking dinner parties. Oh, you know, James, I have to read uh, usually about a book a week for a class at the University of Pennsylvania. There are other that I teach. There are other books I want to read. What that does is that crowds out a lot. And that's what Blinkist can do for you. It really can. They have some great books there. Two of our recent favorites, The Virgin Way, Everything I Know About Leadership by Richard Branson and Untrumping America by Dan Pfeiffer. They're two excellent recommendations. I, I haven't read, but I know about both books. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they are. Try Blinkist out using our free voucher and share your personal experiences with your listeners. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want and all at one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for you out there, our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash warroom. That's all one word to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist. Spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash warroom to start your free day, seven-day trial, or look for the link in our show notes. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash warroom, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast.
Hey, James, we may be the past, but our guest today has political future written all over him. He's Colin Alrad now in his second term in the House from Dallas, Texas, a former National Football League player and civil rights attorney. Congressman, thanks for joining us. And I've got to start off by asking you, what's the latest on the Texas freeze? Are some of your constituents still without electricity? Uh, well, thanks, Alan James. Thank you all for having me. I, I listened to the podcast, and uh, I'm a long-term uh, fan of, of Carville's because my uncle's a Cajun, too. His family's from New Iberia. Um, and, you know, most of the power is back on uh, here in Texas now. Uh, the bigger issue that we have, this is like a statewide flood uh, because many houses were 48, 72 hours without power during single-digit temperatures. And so pipes burst all across my district, all across the state. Uh, and, you know, people, if they left, came home to ceilings that had collapsed, you know, floods and on their hardwood floors and everything. And and, and also shortages of potable water because much of the state has been under a boil water advisory. Uh, and the stores are empty because folks have rushed out and bought all the you know kind of essentials like right now we haven't been able to find milk for our two-year-old for a couple of days now uh so that's really the, the biggest issue we're dealing with now thankfully the power is back on it's 81 degrees in dallas right now uh but the the, the other issue is uh, is water and food that's a that's a huge issue uh where does the primary blame lie was it ERCOT, which manages the texas electric grid the governor or or what well, I think our statewide leaders have not covered themselves in glory uh, during this. You know, we've had uh, our attorney general who just got back in town from skiing in, in Utah yesterday. Uh, and, uh, you know, our junior senator who went on vacation uh, to Mexico. Uh, but in, in terms of how we got here, you know, I think this is a combination of ignoring previous evidence and facts uh, and a commitment to kind of a deregulated uh, state that that led us to have not have the necessary safeguards in place to prevent this from happening. And just so you all know, uh, in 2011, we had a cold snap come through Texas. We had some blackouts. Uh, the federal regulatory agency t- took a look at what happened, made some recommendations about winterizing uh, our grid and taking some steps to make sure uh, that if this happened again, we wouldn't have catastrophic blackouts. Uh, those steps were ignored. And as you probably know, Texas has, is the only state really in the, in the lower 48 that is on its own electric grid. For the most part, we have parts of Texas that are on uh, the, the wider national grids, but most of Texas is on its own grid. Uh, and so when they didn't take those steps, kind of the predictable event that happened was when we had a statewide event where all 254 counties uh, saw low temperatures, the power wasn't there, uh, and the winterizing steps hadn't been taken to prevent a catastrophic breakdown. Uh, and you know, we're finding out now that we were about five minutes away from the entire grid going down. Uh, that's how close we were to just really going straight back to, to the medieval times. Do you have to reconsider having your separate grid? I know they like to say, don't mess with Texas, but boy, this was a mess down there. And, uh, you know, is there, I mean, do you, do you, really have to maybe join or at least partially join that east or west coast grid would that be safer i I certainly think we need to have some redundancies out in place uh texas has a unique scenario where we've got the supply and the demand you know we're creating our own power we have actually a diversified power grid in terms of the energy sources no matter what 
some of our state officials might say, having uh, clean energy and having renewable energy has been a great thing for our grid. In fact, in my home in Dallas, we're able to pick that we're powered entirely by solar power here at our home, and about 10% of our grid is renewable. Uh, but in an effort to escape federal regulation, we now it's all on us. We have no redundancies in place in case something like this happens. You know, if you in m- much of the United States, if you have an event like this, you can draw on outside sources. We can't, uh, and so we certainly have to do something about that. Uh, but even whether or not we rejoin or join the the national grid, uh, we've got to put in place regulations to make sure that our power generators have plans in place to prevent this from ever happening again. And I have a power company here uh, in North Texas that's not in my district, but just outside of my district. I spoke with their CEO and you know they knew on uh, the 9th, this storm hit us on the 14th. Uh, they knew on the 9th that we were not going to have enough power and they were warning state regulators, they were warning ERCOT, they were warning some of the state leaders that this was going to happen. Uh, and they were basically ignored. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of wishful thinking here that, well, hopefully certain things don't happen. But obviously, uh, now a lot of Texans have lost their lives. This is going to be a larger uh, insurance bill coming due than what we had for Hurricane Harvey. It's going to come in. Hurricane Harvey, I think, came in 18 or 19 billion. This is going to be above that based on all the projections. Uh, and, you know, we've had so many lives that even if they weren't lost, were interrupted uh, severely. And so, you know, we can we can never allow this to happen again. I hope the state will put in place something to where we can draw on a federal redundancy if we have to. Wow. James? So, Congressman, in this morning, Wall Street Journal, and I know you've been busy, so you might have some staff pull this up the story. I want to read you a paragraph from that story because I think it's instructive. And this is the Wall Street Journal, of course, which is drawn by Rupert Murdoch, known to champion the free market above everything else. Quote, those deregulated Texas residential communities Consumers paid $28 billion more for their power since 2004 than they would have paid at the rates charged to co- customers of the state's traditional utilities, according to the journal's analysis of data from the Federal Energy Information Administration. So it seems to me that this would be a kind of winning issue to say, point out that what they did is charge us a premium to have one of the greatest historical disasters in the history of Texas. We actually had to pay to freeze to death and to be at at the end of February or coming up and still not have water in millions of homes in Texas. So I think this is a, a winner issue, if you will, going forward, that we can figure out a way to have power cheaper and more reliable. It is something I think that we can look forward to. No, you're right, uh, James. I mean, this is basically also, as we know, I mean, you know, the industry uh, is able to to lobby in Austin. Uh, we, you know, we have basically no campaign finance laws here. Uh, and they, you know, some of their friends got very rich even during this crisis. And so you're absolutely right. We had a an Army veteran just outside of my district who my office reached out to because he's a veteran. And I'm on the committee, Veterans Affairs Committee, who had a $17,000 bill you know, come do just for, you know, living through this crisis. So the most famous person associated with Texas football uh, doesn't play football. I think he played in college, but it's Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys. And I understand that you and Jerry Jones had a little back 
back and forth of, of, of something you were, you were critical of him. Uh, would you explain to our listeners how you and Jerry Jones or how and why y'all got into this little tiff? Well, you know, I, I think that we, we've seen that some folks made a lot of money uh, during this crisis. And uh, it, it it looks like um, you know, Jerry's company, the natural gas company that he owns, made you know enormous amounts of money during this. And, and there's... Uh, our state regulatory agency here in Texas that's supposed to regulate that doesn't ha- doesn't do any price regulation. They say that the market's going to take care of it. Well, when you have a crisis, uh, then you see you know, prices spike. And basically, we're seeing some folks who did extremely well out of this crisis. And, and what I said is that I think that you know Texans and, and folks who have done extremely well and who were already doing well should consider giving the profits of what they earned uh, to the recovery efforts and to the the Texans who are struggling. Uh, and, you know, I guess that not everybody liked it when I said that. <laughs> so before I, 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 I go back to Al, I, I have to ask you about this. And the, the wee hours, I, I think it was of January the 7th, a, a, a Republican, I think by the name of Andy Harris, almost made a, a, a bad choice <laughs> getting in a fight with you on the House floor. I, I think he, he wisely... Uh, had second had misgivings about that, uh, much to his physical betterment. What exactly happened on that uh, kind of emotion pack session that y'all had a historic session in the House with Congressman Harris and yourself and other members? Yeah, well, James, thank you for asking about it because I thought like this has become a little bit of internet lore, and it's not. There's there's a a true story and kind of the the image I think people would like to have of of me like you know taking somebody down on the House floor, um, which didn't happen. Uh, but you know, this is the day of the sixth. This is the evening into the morning of the seventh. You know, after the attack on the Capitol, after we've been in this secure location that they they secreted us away to uh, for four or five hours. You know, not even aware if the crisis was over. And um, and then we came back that night, and we still had to do the debate on uh, the state's uh, results that they were challenging uh, because they still decided to go ahead. Uh, and continue with these challenges, which I first of all thought was, you know, ridiculous. Um, but we still had to do this two-hour debate. And uh, Connor Lamb, uh, James, you know, a friend of yours, and I'm sure a friend of the podcast, oh, yeah. uh, was speaking. And you know, he had some pointed words uh, for the other side about uh, the hypocrisy of the situation we were in. You know, challenging the results in Pennsylvania, given uh, that so many courts had already rejected these arguments. And another colleague of mine, Al Lawson, and, and um, Harris were getting back, going into it back and forth, kind of shouting at each other. And he stepped into the aisle and said something along the lines of, well, come fight me then, or, or let's, let's fight, or something like that. And I was sitting on the aisle on our side, and I just stood up, and, and I, was just, I was just in disbelief, because I couldn't believe after all we'd been through this day, this guy still wants to have a fight. And I said, I said you got to be, are, are you serious? And you can hear me even say on the C-SPAN footage, you know, are you serious? Like, after all the, we you haven't had enough violence for one day, and I, you know, kind of got in his way. And so I think that's, you know, I blocked him from coming over. And, you know, I don't know if he was going right. to go after Connor, or if he was going to go after Al, or, or what the, the end right. point was. Uh, but, you know, I never, we never, you know, came close to fighting or right. anything. Right. But certainly I was, at that point, I was just thinking, you got to be kidding me. I mean, after everything we've been through, 
<laughs> you know. And, I, I think he made it a wise choice. I mean, I wouldn't go after a 37-year-old guy who spent most of his <laughs> NFL. By the way, Connor is, you know, he's not that long of being a ventry officer in the Marine Corps. He probably take pretty good care so, of himself, you know, Yeah, too. you know, there's no former <laughs> Marine. So, he's, you know, he's a Marine, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I Al, just said, I just said, like like man, you don't you know, know how close you came to get into real trouble. But yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Congressman, let me just take you back to one question about the Texas leadership. Governor Abbott said the other day that based uh, that a lot of the blame rests with the solar and wind turbines shutting down. Bill Gates says that's nonsense. Who's right? Well, the governor uh, was not telling the truth when he said that. And in fact, that night when he went on Fox News and said that, he had given an interview to my local ABC station earlier that night in which he admitted that it was natural gas that was the biggest problem. Uh, but just so folks know, you know, about 10% of our grid in Texas is renewable. Uh, the vast majority of the power that went offline was thermal power. So natural gas, coal, nuclear that was the problem is that those thermal power units that we expect to be able to operate in the in cold temperatures went offline yes some wind power to go offline of course solar is you know uh, uh, we had some issues with that as well but it, that was nowhere near uh, the cause of what happened uh, and it really was just a minor contributing factor and some of some of our wind power actually overperformed uh, with what it normally does so i mean it's it's a ridiculous statement. You know, the governor of Texas in the middle of the crisis, this is this is while Texans are still freezing and while they have no power, it goes on national television uh, and is lying about what happened and, and mentioning the Green New Deal as if that's ever been implemented in Texas. Uh, it, you know, is talking about how, you know, renewable energy is, is responsible for this. And, you know, this is just to me an example along with, you know, it's funny that Tech Cruise went to Mexico, but it's not. Um, and that our attorney general was skiing in, in Utah. It, it's the kind of callousness uh, and just lack of regard uh, for Texans in a, you know, just incredibly just dark crisis. I mean, this was, Texans were burning uh, their furniture. They were breaking down their fences and finding any wood they could to burn. They were dying of carbon monoxide poisoning because they're bringing generators into their apartments. And turning them on, two men in my district were found dead in their apartment with uh, a generator in the on switch location, uh, with, the, with the switch turned on, dead of carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, they're they're hugging their babies to their chests and sleeping in their cars and hoping that their car lasts through the night. And at the same time, this is what their statewide leaders are doing. I mean, it's just it's just it's just beyond unacceptable. That same attorney general who's under one indictment and has been accused by his top aides of bribery and, uh, you know, faces another one. <clears throat> Maybe that's why he went to, to Utah. Um, let me ask you one more question, Congressman. I talked to you shortly after the 2018 election, and you told me that you had had coffee, I believe, with one of your constituents, George W. Bush. Have you stayed in touch at all with the former president? Yeah, we have stayed in some touch, and I've worked with his uh, presidential library here and you know they actually you know we actually have a, a meeting of the minds on on more issues than you might think and uh and president bush is, is a funny guy as, as i'm sure you all know um and when when we met uh, he reached out to me first of all and he left me a voicemail when it when he first called me after i won 
and he said that you know congratulated me on winning and so he promised he wasn't going to be a, an annoying constituent always always calling me every time he had a an issue with me um and then when we got together we spoke for about an hour uh and we talked a lot about baseball because i grew up as a, a huge rangers fan here in dallas and, and he was a, a part owner uh, of the rangers um and you know we talked about kind of texas politics and and what was going on uh, but you know I, it's it's a cliche but i i, I found him to be uh, really charming and you know, we had a good time yeah, I, I would remind that Ron Washington, I think, who managed the Rangers to two World Series appearances in New Orleans. So that's right. Yeah, we had we, had, we, we came have, close, James. We came close. Remember that great line in, in the movie Moneyball when he says, "Bosh, tell him that's easy." He said, "It's not, <laughs> not easy." easy. <laughs> that is a great line. He said, "It's not easy." <laughs> one of my one of my favorite kind of moments. so we all know what's coming up in twenty twenty two. And that is a governor's race in statewide races in Texas. The Democrats have not had a governor since 1994. Maybe Gary Morrow was a land commissioner after that. But basically, other than that, we've had nobody elected to statewide office in Texas. Do you see chances for a a, a Democratic comeback? And and more specifically, what role do you envision uh, Colin Alred playing in in this potential comeback for Democrats in Texas? Yeah, well— I do see Texas turning blue, and I, I think that you know the kind of the one of the downsides of, of the fact that we're moving in that direction has been that every election that we don't, certain folks around the country say, "Oh, well, you know, it's, it's never going to happen," and it's a process. I mean, we've gone from uh, you know being one of the most you know deepest red states in terms of the presidential level to Joe Biden, you know losing by five and a half, you know, in, in November, uh, you know, Beto ran a great campaign in 2018, excited a lot of people, brought out incredible uh, youth turnout and then lost by two and a half. So in our last two statewide elections, we've had a two and a half and a five point, uh, you know, margin there. I mean, we're looking a lot better than some of the other states that we traditionally think of as, as kind of, you know, democratic battleground states. Um, and so that investment, has got to be there and it's going to have to be long-term and it can't be one that's based on just, you know, one election, one office. It has to take the approach of that we're building uh, for the long-term because we are uh, a disproportionately diverse and young state. uh, And we need to make sure that we are connecting with this new generation of voters that are, that are just now starting to flex their, their political power here. And so, um, I, I think the prospects for Texas are very good. I know a lot of folks were frustrated in the last election because they got excited towards the end and, and it didn't quite happen. Uh, but I'm 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 a little bit you know done with apologizing about you know how, how and I want to say you know we made great progress uh, and some of the biggest improvements from 2012 to 2020 in the country in terms of democratic performance have been in Texas. So you know I, I think the prospects looks good for me and for for us. Uh, my wife and I have a two-year-old, and we're having our next baby next month. Uh, so I'm focused on, you know, my uh, this, you know, continuing to serve my district, which, as you know, James, I, I flipped in 2018, right. and you know, we I beat a 22-year incumbent Republican to to get this seat. Had another tough re-election in 2020, you know. So we, and we've got a lot to do here, and got a growing family. So for me, I'll be doing everything I can for the district that I was born and raised in, uh, and I'm. But I'll also be contributing to what I know we deserve, which is, is better representation. But I, I mean, 
like I said, discussing the governor and our senator and attorney general and others, I mean, that kind of callousness and arrogance comes from feeling like there is no electoral downside to anything you do. And that leads to bad governance as well. You know, and I, I, as a voting rights attorney before I came to Congress, I feel very strongly that competitive elections lead to better uh, policy, lead to better policymakers. So we need competitive elections here to hold them accountable uh, and to make sure that they feel like they should be serving the people of Texas instead of, for example, a special interest who doesn't want to be regulated like we saw with this crisis. Well, I, I just, uh, I'm going to turn you over before I let you go. Uh, talk to you about your pronunciation, okay? New Iberia, it, it's Niberia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right? It's just like Nye, like a Iberia, Niberia, all right? It's a great place, and uh, I, I so am so just proud to be your friend, and I'm so proud that you, you, you came on the show because I think you, you've really offered our uh, our listeners a, a, a real a, a terrific insight into what's happening in Texas and the potential that Texas has. Like people like myself that go there often, that go to Dallas often, or Houston, or, or other places in Texas. I know what wonderful people are in Texas, and I, I, and I know how bad this thing was. And we so not just appreciate you being a guest on the show, but we appreciate the service you have to the United States, and we're expecting uh, future really great things out of you. So uh, it was our pleasure to have you, Congressman, and I'll turn it over to Al for the last few words. Well, I'll, I'll just second that, Congressman. You uh, really, it's a, you've been a terrific guest, and we've learned a lot. And, I'll, and the only advice I can give you is having, if you have a two-year-old and one on the way, I know you have a very bright future, but during most of it, Congressman, you're going to be tired. Yeah. You're going to be tired a lot. <laughs> I already am. Uh, you probably can't hear it in my voice because I'm so excited about James. But uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, James, uh, we'll have to get you over here to Dallas again once you know get out of this COVID thing. So. Oh, we go. I'll, I'll be there. I love it. It's just it's an easy flight, and I'll, I got a lot of friends in Dallas, and uh, you know we. But those Dallas County Democrats, I love them. They're they're, they're aggressive, fun fired bunch. Up. Uh, yeah, fired they're all up. fired up. They all get along with each other. You know, and you you go and you do that, and you do the Dallas County. You've been Dallas, other places. People are, are interested in getting the job done, and they're interested in issues that really matter to people. I mean, there's some validity when you get to Washington. They start talking about a lot of esoteric stuff that people on the ground just. You don't hear that crap when you when you go around the country and talk to you know Democrat even Democratic activists. They they, they really working hard to make life work yep. at, at, at at a very granular level. And I'm talking about you know mass transit and better water and schools mm-hmm. and you know expansion of health care. I mean these are the kinds of things that Democrats have to be far and. Let people know that they're aware of that's what they're involved in. That that's how we're going to win elections. But we're going to win elections on the fundamentals and treating each other. And you and I talked about this when you were running. Is there's some value in just being nice? Yeah, to that's right. Right. There's just some value in that. And I think some of these politicians who they can't believe that that people are turning on them because if you're arrogant to people over a period of time, they're not going to like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- there's some place for Texas graciousness 
in, right. in, in politics. Yeah. And I, I really I, I really believe that. And I think you exemplify that. I think your mother, obviously, was a very important part of your life. And I think she raised you to be a, a gracious person. And I, I think you're going to raise your children the same way. That's a good way for people to be. Oh, thanks, James. That means a lot to me. Appreciate it. Uh, Congressman, thank you again. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. Um, but, we'll know, have to come back. Yeah, anytime, and uh, you know, we'll see who we get to run for governor here, and uh, hopefully, um, hopefully, somebody steps in and, and does it. So. Well, yeah, I hope you win that one. If you can't beat that attorney general, it's time to throw in the tail. Yeah, Honest to God, I, right. I still can't get over that. That's right. Now, I, that one is probably. I think he only got reelected by three or four points in 2018 and it's gotten worse since yeah. then. So he, he should, we should be able to win that one. Absolutely. Uh, you know, unless he's in the slammer by then. Yeah, he might be. I mean, they might primary him. There's some talk of, of George P. Bush running for that. Yeah. Probably well, I, know, I think we could do well in 2022. So, all right. Yeah. Thank you, man. Okay. Y'all. Thank you. So Thank much. you very much. Take care. Appreciate Bye. So, Alan, we've been on the show before, and there's been a lot of talk about this thing called Fundrise. Would you tell our listeners exactly what this is and what it does? Yeah, James. Yeah, good. It's a great company. It's spelled F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E for our listeners. And we all should be using it because in 2021, a truly diversified portfolio needs more than the traditional mix of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It needs private real estate. Studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation to private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades, thanks to its track record of consistent performance through multiple market cycles. With Fundrise, again, that's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E, this level of powerful diversification is now available to you. Fundrise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate to all investors with their industry-leading easy-to-use platform. And whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vet and actively manage all their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. See for yourself how 130,000 investors, let me repeat that, 130,000 investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com slash warroom. It's spelled F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash warroom. Fundrise.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes. All right, James, now one of our favorite segments. We are getting so many emails coming in and questions, and they are so good. One of the hardest choices every week is deciding how to winnow it down. We got a whole bunch this week. And the first one is from John in Albany, New York. He said, I'm curious to see if either of you think Doug Jones would have any chance at winning the seat that Shelby is retiring from in 2022. And he says, keep bringing on great guests. God, they love Doug Jones. He, he doesn't have any chance in Alabama, though, does he? No, no. I mean, it would take something 
really extraordinary. And, and of course, it would depend on if, you know, if they were to nominate Roy Moore again or something like that, you know, he might maybe he'd have some shot because there's a reasonable chance that Mo Brooks runs. And, you know, if you caught two inside straights, you may be able to do it. But I, I think that Doug Jones has a, a real future in American politics, and I'm sure he has a real future in the Biden administration. I think your yeah. suggestion to him to chair a, what, I get, what do you call it, one-six commission, uh, yeah. it, it, it's really valid, but it, he, he's going to get something huge before this is over. But it, it would take something extraordinary for uh, Doug to, to win that Senate, that Shelby seat 2022. Like but that's, uh, that's not likely to recur. But he is, boy, he is, he is some public service. And you're right, he's going to have a bright future. Susan out in San Diego says, could the House or Senate Still subpoena Trump to testify. Yes, of course they could. I don't think they will. Uh, you know, he'll fight it and they'll just go through a long hassle. I think they're, they they believe there's more productive things. Uh, and the only thing is he would lie and then they would try to get him for perjury. There's enough legal things to get him on. So I don't think that's going to happen. I agree with you. I, I mean, they could. But it, it, this stuff between the Manhattan DA and the Fulton County DA and the incoming investigations of what happened on uh, January 6th and Latita James' the civil things and the multitude of civil suits that are coming, uh, the, the, I, I think he's got a lot to keep him busy right now. And yeah. we don't have to worry about him, like skate, skating off unscathed in the sunset. That is not going to happen. Rest easy. And in Montreal... Asked James, why is it that Americans and American media don't seem to look to other countries as models for dealing with schools during this COVID nineteen pandemic? But but is is that a good question? Um, I'm a former public school teacher, and you know, once you have a system in place, it's really hard to change. And so people say, well, you know, we should have single payer. Well. Maybe we should, but we got what we got, and basically all you can do is try to improve on the basic structure. You know, everybody goes, Finland has the best schools, and everybody gets enamored with Singapore. And look, the, the single best thing that could happen to American education is a massive, and I mean massive, sustained investment in early learning. Because if you don't have that, once these educators get these children and they grew up in poverty, a lot of them grew up in poverty, a lot of them grew up in, 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 you know, less than ideal family situations. A lot of them grew up with not the best nutrition in the world, or the best health care, and you, you, you're just stuck in life. So I think if we had, you know, really, and I don't think there's a study in the world that doesn't say that the, the return Oh, I mean, massive early childhood learning and, and development is somewhere between uh, between seven to one and nineteen to one, depending on the study that you use. So, I, I think we our system needs to be tweaked and improved. But I think the biggest payback is going to come by improving the young people we put in our system, and that is to give them early foundation learning, nutrition, health, 
security, comfort, things that they need, that, that children need to learn that so many children in this country do not have now. And that our schools are not equipped to, to handle the consequences of that. And they'll never be that good at it because that's basically not what they do. They're basically educators. Amen, Professor Carville. And Elizabeth Warren had the most innovative proposal on early childhood education in the campaign. If she had stuck to that rather than getting diverted uh, by a single payer, you know, she might have had a shot. But her proposal is out there. It's interesting. Uh, Politics are going to be tough now after uh, all the money we're going to necessarily spend with this uh, COVID stimulus relief. But boy, it's it's a it's a long range issue, and it's a great long term investment. Oh, and, and she really focuses on child care. The, the benefits for that, which she was proposing to to mothers, but particularly to children, is it's just profound. I mean, how many yeah. times if you you know study something you know a hundred times, and the result always comes back the same. This is where you get the biggest bang. For your buck, yeah, no, it is. It is. I wish she keep. I hope she keeps pushing it. And I, I I think Biden is is into this. Mitt Romney actually, there was a piece today. I used to think it was in the Times, New York Times editorial. Your favorite, your favorite newspaper, right? But who I I I I can hardly be called a New York Times lackey. But I I think they made a good point. I I think Senator Romney's got something to offer you, something to contribute. Yeah, Talking about yeah. raising forty-five percent of these young kids out of poverty, man, that, that's that's pretty good payoff. And his, no, and is, I think his is, you know, kind of parsimonious. It's like a hundred billion dollars a year. It's the stuff of which you can certainly get some kind of a bargain, I think. And I think if you do right. that, you know, because it's going to be hard to get stuff after after the March enactment. But I think there's a real possibility, and you have a, you know, I, there's a second reconciliation. But I think if you could put together a package with Mitt Romney and others, boy. It would, it would be great. Um, Amy in Glenside, Pennsylvania, James, wants to know, how did Trump get all those Republicans? Some are absolute acolytes like Lindsey Graham and Kevin McCarthy. Some are wannabes like Hawley and Cruz. But how did it spread across the country? She asked, I think, uh, very well. To governors, state legislators, and everyday people, is it conservative media, money, promise of power, threats? It's all of the above and fear. Fact of the matter is, to my great dismay, the vast majority of the Republican base today may change, but today are Trumpites, and they're 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 afraid of them. These elected politicians, with a few exceptions, and if they dare veer, uh, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna pay a price for it. Mike Pence couldn't go to the CPAC convention this week. The crazy nuts down there because he knew he would be booed off the stage because he abided by the law last January sixth. That's how crazy they become, James. Well, actually, a lot of them want to hang him, and, and people generally have an aversion to showing up at a at a, at a lynch mob because yeah. you know when, when you speak to an audience and two thirds of them would like to hang you, you probably don't want to go. Right. But there, there's all of this huffing and puffing, and you know, and all the people that we know in high end publications, and you know, you name it. A democracy is broken, as evidenced by Trump. Actually. Trump is evidence that democracy is working. It's working big. The Republican voters love Donald Trump, and the Republican politicians are beholding to the Republican voter. This is what they want. This is the life that they have chosen. 
So we can be mad at Lindsey Graham. We can be mad at people who compromise. But what they're doing is they're actually participating in a democracy. And if you one day we should play George Carlin talk about politicians. And he's so right. Politicians come from us. They go to our schools and, and, and churches. And, and you know, the, these Republicans have demanded that they be lied to. And they've demanded to be lied to. And so the Republican politicians said, well, if you want me to lie to you, okay, I'll lie to okay. you. So therefore, you end up with Ron Johnson saying, we really don't know what happened. You know why he said that? Because 80% or more of the Wisconsin Republicans want him to lie to them. That's what's going on. No, democracy is working. The reason democracy is not working is because it is working. Okay, and I got a good one. No one you, wants to say, everybody wants to say the Republican politicians are weak and feckless and, and spineless. Why didn't somebody say maybe it's because of the Republican voter that you see in this? Okay. Laura in Sunshine, Louisiana. Oh, my so, God. That's my that's almost my hometown. My sister lives in Sunshine. Okay. Laura wants, and this is directed clearly for you. She said she loved last week's podcast with the esteemed Jane Fonda. And she wants to ask you, do you think bringing Jane to Louisiana to rally for climate change and rage, raise awareness of the disappearing coast could make any kind of a difference, or would it just raise the ire of the sportsmen who refuse to acknowledge the reason their paradise is indeed washing away? Good question. Yeah, I, I, I think I know Laura, and I think she's an outstanding student and who's a very environmentally conscious young woman. It's kind of hard to think that two people from Sunshine like that, but I, I may be wrong. Uh, it, 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 it's an enormously frustrating thing and as Laura knows, and I know, and most people know, Louisiana's been, I think, affected by climate more than in the other state in, in a highly adverse way. And, you know, there are, a lot, there are people that are really courageous on this issue in Louisiana, and we have to keep elevating their voices. And, you know, we need to bring in out-of-state out help, if you will, to understand what's going on. So I I completely uh, agree with Laura. I I think I know her and I know her family. They're outstanding, outstanding people. Uh, but what we I want to be there when James Carville and Jane Fonda campaign together in Louisiana. I really mean that. <laughs> oh, uh, I really yeah, mean that. that. That's going to be some. Clay Higgins some, go crazy. But no, sometimes, tell you, you, you know, you want to make an omelet, you got to break an egg. That's right. Kevin in, in Sacramento. Uh, is asking, so is Joe Manchin the new Joe Lieberman? Republicans get to place Supreme Court judges for life with 50 votes, but we can't pay a relief bill. Have our chosen team in the field or fast voter protection laws. Let me tell you something. Joe Manchin is a pal. Uh, he loves the spotlight right now. He loves, I think he's wrong on near attendance. She created some of her own problems. But when you look at some of the people that they uh, confirmed in the, in the uh, Trump administration, from Mike Pompeo to Richard Grinnell, uh, so Nira had a couple careless tweets, uh, but she's eminently qualified for the job. And I think he's wrong in that, but he's, he's, he loves being in the center and they're going to pass the COVID relief bill. And they're going to pass it with Joe Manchin's support. I think the key test, James, and I think this may be one of the most important tests, even as important as the COVID bill may be more important, is whether they can cut some kind of a deal to get a special exception to the filibuster rule 
for that H.R. 1, the voting rights bill, because Republicans in Arizona and in Georgia and a number of other states are going to make sure that there aren't enough people who are young and of color who are going to vote this time so they're in any danger of losing the election. And I think that's important for the Republic. It's important for the Senate. It's important for Joe Manchin. And there has to be some way to work out some kind of a compromise so he and Sinema, at least on a one-shot basis, agree they can pass that bill central to democracy uh, by a majority vote. Well, look, you can have your own personal opinion of what you think of Joe Manchin. My personal opinion is I like Senator Manchin. I do too. I think most (laughs) most of them do. But you're entitled to disagree, and that's all right. We can disagree on that. The one thing that you cannot, we cannot disagree on is he is real. He said that. He is just a giant fact of life. Mm. Like him as, as I do or you do or don't like him as some people do. The reality of Joe Manchin is right there. And, I, and the person that knows that and understands that is Joe Biden. And this is just part of politics. And everybody's got to keep patient, keep forging ahead. And he, I don't think he's at all an unreasonable guy. Uh, it, you know, and we can't lose if, if he wants to hold on to that West Virginia Senate seat, which is not easy. All right. He, he can't, you know, even if he wanted to be, he couldn't be a 100% team player. So right. got to be some understanding here. But the main thing you got to understand is you can have different opinions than we do on Senator Manchin. We do happen to be fans, but he is real. Like him yeah. or not, he's real. He's real, and you're right. I mean, he cannot be a 100% Biden supporter and win re-election yeah. in West Virginia. Yeah. Look, he on the big ones, he's usually been there. He voted to right. impeach Trump twice. That was not a popular vote at the time in West Virginia. And Correct. he's going to be there on the COVID relief. He's trying to come up with a minimum wage compromise. I hope the left is sane enough to take it. Uh, yeah, I, I think we've got to go to $15, you know, tomorrow. But if we can get to 10 or 11 next year and 15 in five years, take it. And I think uh, you're right. Joe Manchin is a pal. I think he will do something. I think they'll come up with a compromise on this voting rights thing, James, because if not, Joe Manchin may well not be a chairman next year. Look, if you don't believe in Joe Manchin's influence, then you believe in the Easter Bunny. Yeah, All right? right. The Easter right. Bunny is not real. Joe Manchin is. Get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, one more question. This is, boy, I tell you, the South is rising again. Uh, DT in Huntsville, Alabama. I've been to Huntsville, Alabama once. I <coughs> named after you. Uh, I, I, it was. <laughs> you know, the family. Uh, Republicans yeah. dominate messaging by getting together in a smoky back room, DT says. But they're coming up with a unified message. They pounded in a submission. Why can't Democrats do this instead of scattershot messaging that doesn't resonate or gets used against us? Well, get Senator Sanders and Senator Manchin to sit out and scratch out a message and we'll go deliver it for them. <laughs> that, that's well, but as you said, James, they had it in 2018. They did. And and the message was right on spot. It was not an ideological message. It was a message that said, we're going to talk about things that are relevant to people. I actually think Senator Vance and Senator Sanders could hammer out a decent message. And we were going to go, we were going to have qualified, diverse people from many different backgrounds. We'll have an inordinate amount, a number of, of female candidates, and an inordinate of candidates that came out of national service, or service in the military, or service to the federal government. And we did that. And then we let this, the, the, the goofy left, 
drag us in, drag us down the rabbit track of defund the police and you know our individual identity is has to, you know has to subjugate our identity as, as citizens of the United States and it led to a predictable place and I I hope we learned our lesson and I think Joe Biden certainly never did that and he doesn't believe that and I'm, I'm hoping that he can lead a, a 2018 revival in 2022 yeah I do too those, those questions are great please keep them coming because um, they make us think. Fascinating conversations. Thank you. So, so Al, that, that, that's an outfit called Punny. Uh, tell me about it because it sounds intriguing. Well, it is. We all shop online, especially during the pandemic. Online shopping in our house now is how we get almost everything. I resisted for a while, but it's not the real world anymore. And when we're shopping, we've all seen the promo code fields taunt us at checkout. Isn't there something we can put in there to be saving? Thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. I need that. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online. They range from sites that have tech and gaming products to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. Just imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites after you've joined Honey. When you check out, the Honey button drops down, appearing on your screen, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons and wait a few seconds while Honey searches for coupons it can find for your purchase. Then if Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the prices drop. Just the other day, it knocked almost $20 off a jacket. And with that cold hitting, you know, anybody should take it. I can't wait to see how much you can save when we get in the market for new computers or recording equipment, James. Well, so in other words, this is an algorithm that actually works for you, which is pretty rare and pretty cool because usually what they have is how these things are sort of generally designed to fleece you more. This is something that you, where you can actually have technology works to get you a better price. This is an intriguing outfit here. It really is. Well, James, it's amazing. Honey has already found more than 17 million members over $2 billion in savings and counting and growing. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing all of us good and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash warroom. That's joinhoney.com slash warroom. Honey.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes. All right, James, our outrages. You know, journalists revel in good stories that keep going, the gift that keeps giving. You know, we had Ted Cruz sneaking off to Cancun while Texans were freezing without electricity. I mean, that was bad enough, but it looked like the story had run its course. Then, of course, he blamed his daughters for what better place to be a good dad than the Cancun Ritz-Carlton. But then in a podcast a couple of days ago, Ted said there are really other villains. Of course, it wasn't Ted. One, his wife is, I'm quoting Ted, pretty pissed and quoted those neighbors who leaked her emails urging them to get out of the hellish freeze in Texas and go join, have some fun in the sun. A second villain was the press who were covering this. They really are assholes. This is what Ted said. Even worse, they took a picture of Heidi in a bikini frolicking on the Mexican beach. 
And then finally, the criticism that he left his dog, the aptly named Snowflake, at home during the family junket. Snowflake was fine, though Heidi had complained the house was an icebox. All right, so let's have a contest, James. Who is most to blame for the junior senator abandoning his constituents in a crisis? Is it A, the neighbors, B, the asshole reporters, C, his two daughters, D, Heidi's bikini, or E, Snowflake? <laughs> I, I, I Look, first of all, if, if I were Heidi and Ted, I would trust no one. Right? You can't trust your friends. No one likes you. Get over it. Don't send anything out, whatever you have, whisper it to each other. Because people just don't like you. And, and when, when Trump made fun of your appearance, Heidi, and when he's called your daddy a murderer, Ted, and you, you, you swallowed it and you sucked up to Trump, no one feels sorry for you. That's for sure. Right? And, and it's just a matter of time before Trump comments on Heidi's bikini appearance because Ted would be scared to say anything because he knows that Trump would do such a thing. So I, I, it, they're right. It's just hard to feel sorry for them. They're just profoundly disliked people, and they brought it upon themselves. I do feel sorry for, sorry for Snowflake, but that's it. Uh, what's your outrage, James? Well, Ronald Reagan famously used to say the most dangerous sentence in the English language is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And it got applause lines and everybody said, hey, let me tell you what the most dangerous sentence in the English language is right now. I'm from the private sector and we're going to offer you a product that is going to increase the quality of the product, and it's also going to make it cheaper. But you talk about a line of University of Chicago bullshit. That's what that is. So the Wall Street Journal, and I, I, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you spent many years at that paper, I, I think is owned by none other than Rupert Murdoch. I think that now. They're, they're edited now, yes. I mean, right now, I think their editorial page views itself as some kind of a champion of the ultimate free market. Well, today they ran a story about Texas's deregulated electricity market that left millions in the dark. And so the, the common refrain is, is, yeah, they came up with this and it provided some cheap electricity over the last 20 years and it worked until it didn't work and then it collapsed and everybody got fucked. There's only one problem with that story. It cost the people of Texas $28 billion more than if they would have been in a regulated market to pay. They actually had to pay an additional $28 billion in electricity rates over the last 20 years so the free market could fuck them. That, that's how, and, this, and by the way, this was not designed, this was not designed by a Texan. Of course, it was pushed by George W. Bush, who we now all worship at him because we all love George W. Bush because he's not Trump. And they had to go to the Ivy League to find someone to design something this disastrous. They had to go to Harvard. And they had to get a guy named William Hogan because the Ivy League gave us Donald Trump. And we all have to worship at, at the altar of credentialism. So all of the Texans that are frozen, just remember that you you turned your state over to a bunch of goddamn Ivy League academics who charged you $28 billion to freeze to death. 
That's what happened. Pinhead ivory tower academicians. Culturally or whatever, I'm just saying (laughs) the shit that these people, Milton Friedman from the highly prestigious University of Chicago said a corporation exists for one reason and one reason only, and that is to return values to its shareholders. It does not exist because of its relationship or obligations to its employers, its suppliers, the nation as a whole, its community, anything else. It is solely driven by the fact that it only exists. So if you were Jerry Jones, this is a good idea because you delivered, you, you overcharged people for electricity for 20 years, and then you really got to overcharge them, and you really got to deliver value to your shareholders. Thank you, University of Chicago. Thank you, Harvard University. We stand in awe of your expertise. <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. And remember to check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. It's what makes this podcast happen. To keep up with us every week, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another good show, another good guest, as we continue our 2021 War Room planning.